It is a landscape which a few hours ago, between the rainfall and the short twilight, extracted colour from the spectrum of the setting sun and dyed every one of its own surfaces that could absorb light. The ochre walls of the houses in the old town, which are stained too with their bloody past and uneasy present. The moving water of the river and the still water of the tanks. The shiny stubble, the ploughed earth of distant fields, the metal of the grand trunk road. In this landscape trees are sparse, except among the white bungalows of the civil lines. On the horizon there is a violet smudge of hill country. This is the story of a rape, of the events that led up to it and followed it, and of the place in which it happened. There are the action, the people, and the place, all of which are interrelated, but in their totality incommunicable in isolation from the moral continuum of human affairs. In the Bibica Gardens case, there were several arrests and an investigation. There was no trial in the judicial sense. Since then, people have said that there was a trial of sorts going on. In fact, such people say the affair that began on the evening of the 9th of August, 1942, in Mayapur, ended with the spectacle of two nations in violent opposition, not for the first time, nor as yet for the last, because they were then still locked in an imperial embrace of such long-standing and subtlety, it was no longer possible for them to know whether they hated or loved one another, or what it was that held them together, and seemed to have confused the image of their separate destinies. In 1942, which was the year the Japanese defeated the British army in Burma, and Mr. Gandhi began preaching sedition in India. The English then living in the civil and military contunement of Mayapur had to admit that the future did not look propitious. They had faced bad times before, though, and felt that they could face them again. But now they knew where they stood, and there could be no more heart-searching for quite a while yet about the rights and wrongs of their colonial imperialist policy and administration. As they were fond of putting it at the club, it was a question of first things first, and when they heard that Miss Crane, the supervisor of the district's Protestant mission schools, had taken Mr. Gandhi's picture down from the walls of her study and no longer entertained Indian ladies to tea, but young English soldiers instead, they were grateful to her, as well as amused. In peacetime, opinions could be as diverse and cranky as you wished. In war, you had to close the ranks. And if it was to be a question of sides... Miss Crane seemed to have shown at last which she was really on. What few people knew was that the Indian ladies themselves had taken the initiative over the question of tea on Tuesdays at Edwina Crane's bungalow. Miss Crane suspected that it was the ladies' husbands who had dissuaded them from making the weekly appearance, not only because Mr. Gandhi's picture had gone, but in case such visits could have been thought of in this explosive year as a buttering up of the Raj. What hurt her most was that none of the ladies had bothered to discuss their reasons with her. They had one by one, or two by two, just stopped coming, and made feeble excuses when she met any of them in the bazaar or on her way to the mission schoolroom.